Let us pray. Loving God, we ask that your bright star might shine on this text and in our lives, in our imaginations, in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds, that they may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am grateful for this passage of scripture because it gives us a little insight into King Herod. If ever there was a true villain in the New Testament, it is King Herod. And it gives us a little idea of his paranoia, his fragile ego, his instability, and what might have gone on in the palace chambers. Now, in truth, if you look at ancient historians, they will tell you that Herod was actually quite a brilliant administrator. He was able to get Jerusalem back from the Hasmoneans who had taken it over. He was able to reconstruct the temple for the Jews. He got his position by going and asking for military support from the Roman Empire. And the Roman Senate was so impressed with them, they said, let's make this guy our guy in Jerusalem. And that's what he became, a puppet leader, some might say pejoratively, of the Roman Empire on the local ground. However, he was not very popular with the Jews, the people of Israel. They thought he was selling them out, that he was going to make them more Roman when they really wanted to be essentially Jewish. And yet, he built beautiful fortresses. This past summer, I climbed over the steps of the most famous of them, Masada, which has become a great emblem of Jewish nationalism, Israeli pride. And it is amazing on that high peak that they built a beautiful Roman-style temple that still stands, or palace, that still stands to this day. Or you can go to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, where he built a beautiful amphitheater and a port to help increase trade into their region. And even though ancient historians cannot corroborate the events of this text, they do all point to the fact that later on in his reign, he became increasingly unstable, difficult, harboring lots of conspiracy theories, and lashing out. He had a large number of concubines. He's said to have had a total of nine wives and was sometimes married to more than one at the same time. Among his victims were his second and favorite wife, a Hasmonean princess who he believed might be plotting against him, so he had her assassinated. Later, his brother-in-law, Aristobulus the Younger, whom he had made a high priest, as well as the king from whom he had conquered the territory. And he was flattered and cajoled and used by Rome, but never able to really reconcile himself to his own people. You see, Herod became difficult and died a very difficult death in the end. It's important for us to have a little focus on a leader like Herod because they still exist among us today. In fact, in recent history, in the little glimpse that is Western history, you will see Napoleon or Ataturk or Adolf Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Bashar al-Assad or even folks that we see in the news today in places like Russia and the Philippines. Now, what we also hear about in this text is what happened to the Holy Family. They became refugees. 
And today, in this world, we have some 65 million or more refugees. You'll see the image on the cover of your order of worship, which many churches have put on their front lawns, that refugees and immigrants are welcome here, just like the Holy Family were refugees and immigrants. The United Nations Commission, High Commission for Refugees defines a refugee as someone who is forced to flee his or her home country because of persecution, war, or violence. A refugee has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular group. Now, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to travel some 200 miles or more by foot to make it to Egypt. That would be like you and I walking all the way to New York City today, although it was much warmer than for them. But it was a dangerous journey because there are often many gougers, bandits, wild animals, gangs of thieves waiting for them. They probably went in a group because a lot of people from Israel who were fleeing Herod's rule would go to Egypt. Now, you can read those same stories in the newspaper today of people from all over the world who face gougers, bandits, thieves, people who charge them exorbitant prices to get on flimsy rafts that most likely will not make it to their destination, people who sacrifice everything for a glimmer of hope, people who have come on the short end of the stick of the world's economy and are often forgotten about and not remembered. That's why our Missions Giving Committee on Christmas Eve designated our offering to go for Doctors Without Borders, that we might help people around the world in their health crises. You see, if you pay attention to the Gospels, particularly these Gospels about the beginning of Jesus' time on earth, you realize that God doesn't hang out in palaces or fortresses very often. That in the words of George Orwell, as the more power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, God is likely to be found among the beasts of the field, the shepherds watching their flocks, among the astrologers traveling without papers from the east, and among refugees and immigrants going to Egypt. The heroes of this story are not the kings or the high priests, but Joseph, a loving father who, despite the confusion around him and the weirdness of his beloved's pregnancy was willing to listen to his dreams and follow his hunches and do what he thought was necessary. Had he not followed his dreams, you and I would not be sitting here today. And even though we don't hear much about her in this story, Mary is a hero because who knew that she, she knew that she held the baby God tight to her breast, keeping him warm and fed and changed his swaddling clothes and nurtured him into being in spite of the stress of travel and danger that lurked around them. And the heroes in this story are the wise ones who also followed their own studies, their own hunches, their own curiosity about this strange star in the night sky, who were wiser and had more common sense than a power-hungry, paranoid tyrant and would not play into those schemes, but trudged on by their own cleverness. If you skip ahead in the Gospel of Matthew, about 23 chapters, you'll see at the end of his life, this baby Jesus instructed people what the kingdom of heaven would be like. And it would be like a ruler separating us into sheep and goats. And the ones who had offered comfort to those in need 
people who were thirsty or needed clothing or were in prison or were sick or broken down in some way, those were the ones who would enter the kingdom of heaven. It is a little moral tale about who do we serve. And those sheep said, well, God, Lord, King, when did we see you like that, broken down, hungry, in prison, sick? And, of course, the answer, which many of us know by heart, is whenever you did this to the least of me, you did it to me and to members of my family. If we carry the same rule to the Holy Family, then you and I are called to offer protection and succor and hope to refugees and immigrants wherever they come from. Now, it's a big thing to wrap our head around, 65 million displaced people in the world. And to give you a start, I prepared a little sheet for you in your orders of worship that you can take home. And the first thing I ask you to do is just to make refugees and immigrants a regular part of your prayer practice. Because the more we center ourselves prayerfully, the more we help shift our perspective. You see, I believe that you and I are called to go home by another way, to find new and alternative paths, just like the wise ones did. And then in some ways, welcoming refugees and immigrants is more than a political act, but it's a state of mind, a spiritual practice. So begin it with prayer. And for those of you who'd like to go a little bit further and expand your knowledge and get educated, which is sometimes more sobering than you would like it to be, go ahead and dig in in some of the resources suggested there, including a documentary that came out this past fall. And then if you'd like to go a step further and take a little action, there are several different resources locally who are seeking to help refugees and immigrants. Over the past two years, some of you have indicated that you would like United Parish to host at least one refugee family. And there are ways for us to do this. I would welcome a meeting in which we figure out how we might be a part of this movement together. But I would also say, in that prayerful, spiritual posture of welcoming refugees and immigrants, it's something that you and I carry with us into any interaction. Because we never know when the Holy Family might land at our doorstep. You and I know plenty of refugees from broken families and abusive relationships, or immigrants from places where they were unwelcome and unwanted, like churches where they were not accepted. And we then become the sanctuary and the refuge and the people who welcome them, the innkeepers who decide that we have some room. Whenever you and I are willing to follow some strange star, to follow our hunches or our dreams, whenever we help a lost soul, whenever we honor a child or an elder or any human being who needs our help, whenever we are kind and practice compassion, whenever we are willing to say no to outsized fear and paranoia and fragile egos, or conspiracy theories that take us down rabbit holes that never end, whenever we're willing to call up whatsoever things are true and lovely and good to remember our best values, our godly values, you and I then follow in the footsteps of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the wise ones from the East. Because they may not have known just how courageous they were being, or that over 2,000 years later, we would be still telling their story and being inspired by it. See, for you and me, these may seem like small things, smaller than even a newborn baby, smaller than even a big dream of change. 
but practiced regularly, these small actions are nothing short than the things that will save the world. Amen.